Hey, what's going on, everyone? You're tuned in to the Founder Hour Podcast. I'm your co-host, Pat. And today on the show, we're joined by Rich Antoniello. Rich is the founder and former CEO of Complex Networks, a media and entertainment company for youth culture that reports on popular and emerging trends in style, sneakers, food, music, sports, and pop culture. Complex was originally started as a bi-monthly magazine by fashion designer Mark Echo. Rich joined forces with Mark several years in and helped transform the company into a multimedia conglomerate of brands which includes First We Feast, Complex Con, Pigeons and Planes, and Soul Collector. The company was first acquired in 2016 through a joint venture by Verizon and Hearst and went through a second acquisition in 2021 by BuzzFeed via a SPAC merger valued around $300 million. Rich served as CEO of Complex for 18 years, starting in 2003 until stepping down last year following the BuzzFeed acquisition. Please enjoy our incredibly insightful and candid conversation with Rich Antoniello. Rich, yeah, appreciate you, you know, hanging out with us, and we're looking forward to hearing uh, all about your personal story and everything related to, you know, your career with Complex and beyond, and um, you know what we like to always do just to give some context to start from the very, very beginning. Um, so, kind of tell us a little bit about, you know, your childhood, where you were born, what you were like, and then we can go from there. Yeah, the um, it's it's not that exciting. Uh, <laughs> It's kind of very boring. I grew up uh, in Brooklyn, in uh, Canarsie, and then Marine Park. I don't, it's two areas that are not that the areas that nobody knows from Brooklyn because only people from Brooklyn live there, not transients. So, um, and my father, like both my parents, are like first, like I'm first gen. Both of them are off the boat. Uh, no high school. Neither one of my parents graduated high school. So like education was not a very big thing in my uh, family across the board. Um, But of course, my father decided that it was going to be a big thing for me because there was no way that I was going to be a UPS guy like my dad. How did that make you feel, Rich, that, you know, you had parents that didn't graduate and now here they are trying to get you to go to school? Uh, oh, I, I didn't look at it as a resentment thing at all. Um, you know, I was acutely aware of where I was growing up and I, look, I loved it. Like I always did exceptionally well in school. I was very lucky. I took tests really well. So, um, but I didn't really hang out with the kids I was in my grade with my, my school with, I hung out with my neighborhood friends and we played sports and, did some other things that we won't discuss on this, but, uh, played with you know, flowers. You picked flowers. Yeah, is that what you said? Exactly. That's what, that, but by the way, there's levels to that comment. Right. So, um, but, uh, no, 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 we, we, my father was, um, did not want the same thing. And I remember having conversations six, seven, eight years old. And he's like, you don't want to be here. You don't want to live this way. You don't want to do this. And, uh, you know what? I wasn't fighting him on it. And, um, you know, he didn't know how to help me. He just knew that he was not going to let me slip. So it was one of those type of situations. So you mentioned you're like good in school. Uh, did you like, was it like a particular subject that you really liked or that you were really into? Uh, math, science, things like that. Like I, I realistically, I was, let's, we can fast forward to my, uh, my graduation party from high school and my cousin, who's a very good friend of mine, was just at one of my kind of um, celebratory and it's not a retirement party, but it was a transitioning from a full-time role party. And um, 
she was sitting next to me at my dinner and goes, do you remember your 18th birthday party? And I'm like, what do you mean? And she goes, you know, I came up to you and I said, what do you want to do for a living? And you go, I don't care as long as I never worry about what I'm paying for anything. And I got a boat on the weekends that I go and hang out and I live a very different life than this. And, and she's, and she goes, and you topped it off and go with the cherry. She goes, and I'm not going to punch a clock or work for anybody. It like the day there's a five in front of my age. And I was like, Oh my God. I'm like, did I really say that back? And she was like, yeah, she was, your ego was insanely large. Number one, but two, you, you, you didn't know how you were going to get there, but there was no question what your goal was. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, go ahead. No, no, it's funny you say that because, you know, especially about the wealth piece, because I define or I've always ever since I was a kid, you know, you know, similar kind of backgrounds to their rich. And it's like I would tell my parents and I tell my friends and I tell them till today. I mean, and I'm not not there yet. But for me, I would define wealth and I'm not necessarily materialistic. But if I want to do something, I want to go somewhere, I want to buy something. I don't want the number that it's going to cost to be affected. Like, I don't want it to affect me. And that I feel like is when I've reached that level of success that I want to be at. And to your point, I don't know how that's going to happen just yet, but that's what I aspire to well, do. Let me let me let me jump in there because I think there's a funny conversation to be had there. Um, you think like you're going to get there and you're never going to care about it. And I have news for you: if you grew up like the way I grew up, like I still agonize over purchases that I shouldn't even think about. And yet, because of who you are and how you grow up, like what if you ever watched your parents fight over which bill to pay oh, electric sure. or gas? Like, I got news for you: you're never going to feel comfortable rolling up to a car dealership, buying a car, and driving off a lot. I don't. Right. I, it, it's just right. never going to happen. You're going to negotiate the shit out of it before you do it. And I could do it, but I yeah. like, but it's I'll, like I've never done it in my life. I'll never do it in my life. It's just not who I am. I've never been able to break out of that very, you know, it sounds great in theory. You're like, oh, I can just do whatever I want. And you, I know it, but it's still behaviorally, I have never been able to outrun my childhood in that way. Is there ever like a fear that you might lose it all? Is that, is that, is that the thing? Or like, what, well, what do you think that's way, the result that a, Are you now getting into the macroeconomics of the current status of this country? Because that's a very <laughs> accurate question if that's the case, right? Yeah. Um, the, no, in all, of course, of course, right? Like how much is enough? What's the math? Um, you know, I'm never somebody who's not going to do anything. So, you know, you, I never feel like I make enough. Um but that's that that honestly, that's not rational thought process. That's that's just innate childhood overhang from yeah. that is always going to affect me. But I'm going to tell you something not to make a transition here, but or a segue, but that things like that were one of the big reasons why I think I was a good entrepreneur and I got the best compliment I have ever received at our last board meeting before we sold complex for the first time. And we had guys from Excel and Austin ventures on our board and Chris Pacitti, who was the, uh, the GP from Austin ventures goes, you know, we never worried about losing. We didn't never thought we'd have a win this big, like 17 X on our money, but 
we never worried about losing because honestly, every single dollar that you ever took from us, you treated like it was your own. And to me, that was the ultimate compliment I could ever get from, from a, like a funding base. How, how did you do that? Or what, 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 I mean, obviously you've talked about your background now, but kind of transitioning even to the, just the advice portion of this for founders that are raising money or have raised money. What does it take to do that? Because it's very easy to get lost in, well, here's $20 million before you even have like a team and here's your idea. Like, well, first of all, to be fair, I wish that was the case for me. The work, when I raised money for the first time, it wasn't like that. Yeah, it was like so two hundred thousand. You know, it was a big round. I was, I, well, well, first of all, the check size was different. The state of your business was different, and how many cohorts were writing those checks was infinitely smaller. Like the amount of VCs, angels, seeds went in the first time we went and raised capital in 08 and 09. And by the way, just think about those two years, 08, 09. A lot of people listening to this probably, they they think about it, but I don't think they understood how dire that circumstance actually was back then. Um, I mean, it, people pulled term sheets when Lehman fell. Like it didn't matter, you were about to close. Everyone pulled term sheets. It was over in September of 08. And that was right in the middle of when we were in a cash crunch as a business. So the world's a little different, but, you know, raising capital is a different game today than it was before, but still fundamentally, it's the same thing. It's, it's conveying, you know, your passion, your will to win at almost any cost. Um, having a big vision for a large scale company that can be either a huge fish in a smaller pond and be, and have a great exit or a very large scale success on a ubiquitous basis that just changes a sector, but you still fundamentally have to convince a very small number of people, maybe just one to write a check. It's just like, uh, you know, finding your wife or finding your husband. It only takes one. Yeah. And that's what I think there's a lot of people that can over construct and be like, oh, I'm going to build the perfect cap table. And, and look, I'm not saying there aren't people who've been able to do that. That is such an anomaly. And it also is so lucky. And you have to be the right person at the right time with the right macro circumstances. There is no scripting this thing perfectly. It is a dogfight. It is a, even in the best of times and be prepared to go in and go, I'm, I, I have, you have to do all the right things, be super prepared and be wildly honest as well. Like I don't believe in, you know, selling somebody a slightly different picture of the reality. I don't believe in fake it till you make it. Like I am not a big fan of that. I know that is a huge trend and I am just not a big fan, especially when you're taking other people's money. Yeah. Um, but the reality is it's, it's just so even common, right? Rich LPs, even if it's rich LPs, yeah. I don't care. Like yeah. you're taking other people's money. That means you should treat it like it's your own. hundred percent. So yeah. sorry, I, that was a very big tirade. I apologize. No, no, that. no. That's, that was, that's, that's why we do this podcast is to hear the real stories behind the real founders so that, you know, after they hear stuff like this, they think to themselves, well, shit, I want to be part of that. Or I'm going to run away as fast as I can, and I'm not going to be an entrepreneur, which is okay. 
but at least well, I, I know people would run away for, for sure. Like, like I vote, I vote for people. If you are, have the passion, have the fortitude, have the capabilities from an intellectual perspective and want to do it, I will do, I will do everything in my power to help you. But if you don't check all of those boxes, don't bother. Right. Yeah. Um, all right. Before we get into kind of all this stuff, cause there's so much interesting things to cover on this, on, on this topic, but Going back to you know your 18th birthday, you you kind of had a vision for what you wanted your life to look like. Did you know how you were gonna kind of take the next step? And what did you? And if you didn't, kind of how did you even start to get the ideas rolling? And what did you do? So, a um, I didn't have an idea. I the only thing I knew back then because I didn't grow up in a house where like we read the Wall Street Journal or at dinner we talked about things like that. Like you know we ate together after my dad finished his route and then we watched sports and talked about the Yankees. Like, you know, I, I, and I say all that, not, not woe is me crap, but I, I do say it from the standpoint is I don't think people understand what an advantage it is to be in a home where you, people are talking about building businesses, understanding these things, getting support from that perspective. That is such a head start because it might not help you be more effective, but what it helps you is understanding which lane you want to be. And I had to kind of start at the widest aperture of the funnel because I, so what do you do when you go, I just want to make a lot of money and it's 1989. I'm going into college. You go, Oh, I'm going to go be a, a broker because wall street just came out a couple of years ago. Right. Like yep. that was, by the way, that was my extent of rich people. Yep. Right. Like, oh, I'm like, oh, I'll be, go be a broker and, I'll, you know, Blue Star Airlines. Right. So I'm like, oh, I'll figure this out. And I was like, oh, I'm good at math and I'll do that. And um, I went to college and I and right when that happened, the whole um, the George first George Bush, the war, they were talking about a draft. It, it was the first time they really talked about a draft. And I was like, oh, my God. And the job market just shrunk like out with alum just went away. And I was worried. I was like, I'm going to have to just get a job. So I started um, into accounting, believe it or not. What a fun job. Oh. <laughs> and um, but can I tell you something? I took cost accounting in my second semester uh, at the School of Management at Binghamton. And uh, me and my buddy, my best buddy, this guy, John Raniolo, went to pick up our grades at the end of the thing. And we had this wacky professor named Goldberger um, who was awesome, right? Like, you know, like right out of central. He was like Larry David's cousin who was teaching cost accounting. Oh, man. And, and we go, no, that, by the way, it gets so much better. So I walk into, we walk into his office together and, uh, we're like, oh, we're getting our final grade and our the fi- the grade on the final and our final total grade. And uh, and he goes, Rich, this is Goldberger talking. He goes, you are not an accountant. And I'm like, oh fuck. I'm like, I bombed the final. And he goes, oh no no no. He goes, you got an A on the final. You got an A minus in the class. He goes, but you are not an accountant, my friend. He goes, you have to get out of this. You are going to be. You're going to be the guy who walk like it goes postal and loses his mind and be miserable. You got to get out of this. And he turns to John. He goes, "You, my friend, are an accountant." And John's like, "Oh, I ate the final." He goes, eh, "Not really." He goes, "But you are an accountant." And by the way, he's the CFO at a hedge fund now. 
So it's like I, perfect. I wish more professors were this just straightforward with students. I think they get sued in this day and age by saying that. Unfortunately, but it, I mean, like that could have set you on a track if he didn't do that. Could have set you on a track that would have made you miserable, perhaps. Uh, it would. It definitely would have. And I will tell you, hearing that from somebody who had done it and was def- was so definitive about it gave me the confidence to take marketing classes. And I fell in love with finance classes and marketing classes the next year. And I double majored in those two. And I was lucky enough to have an internship at BBDO in the summer of 1992, which changed the course of my life as well. I realized I found I, that I loved media and I loved marketing. And um, I got pressed into some great work during that summer. It was the uh, when when BBDO was owned, uh, NBC was owned by GE, which was a BBDO client, and we were pressed into selling the gold package for the Olympics. And I put all these plans together in a press, not knowing what the hell anything looked like. So I basically got two years worth of experience over two and a half months in that summer, and I was like, "This is what I'm gonna do." And uh, what about it stuck out to you so much? Like, why did you enjoy it? Um. I fell in love with the the creativity of it and not in like a like a like writing the copywriting or coming up with a commercial, but the creativity of being able to take a business analysis and instead of ripping a company apart and selling it for pieces or doing M&A stuff, which, by the way, M&A back then was more buying a company and ripping it and selling it for pieces like it was very it wasn't very um, builder oriented. So that's what I fell in love with. The, the application of quantitative and math and analysis and applying it in a very qualitative way, not having qualitative and quantitative separate, but melding those two worlds. And I watched media and account work and creatives work together to do that. And I was like, wow, this is something not only I can do, but I'm going to be really good at and I love. And I lucked out. I mean, that was the best exposure I've ever gotten in my life. Rich, remind me where you went to college. I think you might have mentioned it. I went to SUNY Binghamton. Did you, so, did, no. did you, did you enjoy it? Did you enjoy the college experience? Uh, oh, I loved it. Um, the, uh, I mean, I wish I would have gone to a slightly warmer college uh, where um, there was more to do. I mean, Binghamton is, uh, you go to class and then you find places to drink. So it's, uh, isn't that every college though? Yeah. But you know, there's, uh, there's, uh, not every place gets four days of sunlight every semester. Yeah. Like, like, and it's any place that is is the land of car dealerships is not where you want to go to college. (laughs) Oh man. Did did most of your like peers end up going and working at car dealerships? (laughs) You know, what's wild about it is, uh, number one, a lot of uh, guys I graduated with have done exceptionally well. It's, but it's a big, um, and I think it's a function of the school. Is uh, you a lot of people either are very large into accounting, so like the financial side of like CFOs and other things like that. It's either accounting or lawyers. There's a lot of lawyers and a lot of accountants. Interesting. And uh, and I mean like like serious players in like M and A stuff at large scale firms. 
Um, I was very lucky. A lot of the guys I went to, a lot of the people I went to school with um, have all done exceptionally well, like the year before me, my year and the year after. Yeah, that's awesome. You know, something you mentioned, and I want to kind of touch on this, and, and Posh is probably going to be like, oh my God, he brought it up again, is this concept of exposure. And, and we talk, we've talked about it, you know, over the last five years that we've been doing this. We talk about it a lot because it comes up often and it's super important to touch on because you mentioned it a little bit where, you know, if you kind of grew up in a household that you had all this exposure, oftentimes those people kind of have an idea of what they want to do by the time they get to college. So, it's a little bit more of a one track mind and that could work out or that can't work out. It, it just really depends on the person. But well, I guess it usually breaks one, no, but it breaks one way or another. You either yeah. like, it's like, Oh my God, it's been forced on me. So I hate it. And I revolt and go the other way or like I've been exposed to it. And I was, I was, I was shown the road and I yeah. realized how much easier it is to run downhill in this mm-hmm. way because of that advantage. Those are really, exactly. and I'm not saying there aren't other circumstances, but to me, those are the two tributaries that I've seen people break on. Yeah, and but for people that maybe are are currently in the position that you are in, where they kind of don't have that exposure and they don't really know, even in college, what direction they want to go and what even interests them, what their passions are, because it is such a, I mean, it's not easy to to really like pinpoint something and be like, that is my passion, that is what my career is going to be, and oftentimes passion doesn't always equate to a, a career, right? And so, and what would you tell them? that right there yeah, because please there is like first of all i i think it's insane to make people choose what they want to do for the rest of their life in college like i think that's the dumbest thing in the world i every time i hear p- people say that like dude i went into media then i did sa- magazine sales like i sold ad space in magazines and then i put my passions and all those things together and i got an entrepreneurial opportunity to build every aspect of a business across the board. And there's no way that I thought that I wanted to do that. I thought that I would ever be able to build that expansive of a skill set, that I was even up for that level of challenge. Um, I knew I wanted the spoils. I didn't know whether I was up for the challenge though, however. Right, right. But here's the difference is previously, 20 years ago, you needed an in in a lot of these industries and I'm not saying an in and networking does not help. It totally does. But I couldn't Google anything in college and go, oh, my God, what what is a an investment banker? How, how does what are best practices like you, there is no excuse. The barrier to entry of knowledge does not have to exclusively come from home anymore. Right. Like everything is everywhere. Every piece of information, honestly. Every how-to video is out there as well. I'm not saying there isn't a lot of bad how-tos, but yeah. it is everywhere. TikTok, YouTube, everything. Information and barrier to entry is so much lower. Now, every field is way more crowded and more competitive. Yep. So the white spaces are much more challenging, but the barrier to entry and information, if somebody uses that as an excuse in this day and age, I have I do not need to speak with them. And on that like, point, so even though... Never- yeah. They're never going to win. Even though it is readily available, oftentimes you, you still don't know until you do something. So you, it's kind of out of the experience and like the fact that passion is sort of a developmental thing that as you start doing things, as you start becoming good at certain things, you kind of develop perhaps a passion for it because you're seeing the impact you're making, right? And so from that perspective, it's like, all right, the ideal would be like, I want to try a hundred different things and see what sticks. But realistically, like we don't have you know, years and years and years and years. I mean, we do, but like 
you know, you want to kind of try to nail that down as soon as you can. And so I'm just trying to say, like, what would you say to people that are maybe in that position? You know, Well, to me, I apply everything in personal or professional as a decision funnel, right? So it's like, how, do, how wide of an aperture do you want at the top? Like, okay, if you realistically are like, I don't know whether I want to be a doctor, an investment banker, um, uh, like a line cook, or, you know, like, by the way, I got news for you. Your funnel is going to take so long to, like, actually make a decision so you have to figure out and be intellectually honest with yourself about two things, to, three things to start at the top of the funnel. What are you willing to put in? Like, are you somebody who's ever willing to work 80 to 100 hours? And I don't mean like looking at your phone for 80 to 100 hours. I mean working for 80 to 100 hours. Are you somebody who is willing to take massive risks with your money and your time and your family and everything? And are you somebody who also um, has a great, a wide scope of abilities, right? And where I'm going is just down the entrepreneurial route. But my, like, my point there is you have to bring all three of those things together if you're going to really win in that space. And then by process of elimination, you could be like, all right, I'm not afraid of hard work. But I don't love that risk factor. I don't love that all or nothing. And and I do want to learn a whole bunch of things. Okay, then maybe you're a doctor. Maybe you're like, okay, so you're not afraid of the hours. You're not afraid. You want to make good money. But like, I can't, I, I need something that is more linear and less risk, right? So, they, like, and again, I'm oversimplifying this. But to me, everything is, it's very simple. It's like, what are the inputs? Be intellectually honest about who you are. And, and then go, what's the risk reward analysis on that side of things to be able to drive down a decision-making funnel? You know, and Rich, to, the, to those points, because I agree with all the three points that you broke down very eloquently, I think a big part of that is accepting that even if you are armed or even if you are the hardest worker and you're willing to put in the work, that failure is the likely outcome. And you have to be so okay with that. And then I think you can actually be on the road to success. Because I think a lot of people are like, you know, they're like, oh, well, I'm going to fail, so I shouldn't even get started. Well, you've already failed, right? So I think if you can accept that if you start, if you put in the work, if you want to build the skills, you want to network, and even after all of that, it doesn't work out, it's okay, right? We'll do it again. It might, I, I, but here's the thing is what's crazy is in this day and age, especially, and I'm not saying it wasn't true before. I just think it's more true now. If you really give it, and I'm going to be really corny here, that the college try, right? Like, but if you really go all in and you had the right idea, but the timing didn't line up, right? really intelligent investors are going to go be like, you got screwed by the macro, not you didn't do everything, you know. I say this all the time and my staff probably wants to kill me, but 95% of what we do is out of our control. What does that mean? That means the 5% that is in your control, you fucking destroy. There is not an excuse in the world to not get that beyond perfect and better every single day. Period. End of story. And I'm going to tell you something. In this day and age, investors who will look at that, um, like here's a perfect case example. And not that I'm defending anybody and I'm not taking sides, but like fast, just exploded, right? You're going to tell me that Dom's not going to get another shot? Mm. Not even a question. 
Not even a question. He'd get one tomorrow. And whether, whether it's right or wrong, my point is, is you could have a big failure and still not be done. Now, many, not many people will rec- can mentally recover from something like that. Not many people can detach themselves from that failure and allow themselves to move on clean into something else. But the world's a different place now. And, you know, we have, we have bred, um, and by the way, I, I think this is a very bad thing for society. Um, we have bred a large amount of people that, that believe in grand slam or strikeout culture. And, you know, when 85% of the world or your society works for people in big companies and contributes, you can have seven and a half percent on each side or 3% win and 12% lose. And that's okay because the math will allow and absorb those losers and that, and that work. But when 50% of your society is playing grand slam or strikeout, I don't know if the math still works to be able to absorb that ratio because the ratio of winners doesn't go up. It actually might go down when there's more entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. And I know nobody talks about this, but directionally, I am very concerned. I'm not trying to be a naysayer and I'm not trying to be like, don't try or scare anybody. I'm just saying there's a lot of unintended consequences that are not being contemplated from a societal perspective by our politicians, um, by just overall people about the the net effect in its totality. We can't all just act like individuals 24-7 and take no responsibility for the the overall of everybody. So do you think that we're in an entrepreneurship bubble of sorts? Um, no, because I think it's a permanent shift. I don't think it's a trend. I don't think people will ever go back to accepting that they aren't special and unique and go work for other people and take direction. But but Rich, what are the what are the consequences of that? Because you're right, that is happening, right? Everybody's thinking to them, not everybody. A good amount of people are thinking to themselves, I'm educated, I've got 3 to 5, 3 to 6, 3 to 7 years of experience working for somebody else. I believe I can do it myself, so I'm going to go give it a shot. As we know, most of them will probably not work out. But beyond that consequence, how does that impact the greater whole, like the American people? You know, I mean, well, just, it affects the, the world too, but just to focus well, here. Just play the math, right? Yeah. Like 95% of businesses fail, right? Yeah, probably more. Probably like yeah, who knows? 93 yeah. to 95, whatever that percentage is. Um, and like I said previously, maybe 10 to 15% of people were entrepreneurs. And by the way, a greater preponderance of those are small businesses, Mm -hmm. which have a much higher ratio of success than large scale entrepreneurs. And that's the other thing that people don't make a delineation between. But Mm -hmm. now we're getting into like socioeconomic stuff and other things like that. But like, let's just play it out for 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 that case. Let's say 40 that 15% turns into 45%. Right. And now because of the sexiness of large scale entrepreneurship, it's even fewer people to going into like landscape and gardening and, um, you know, plumbing and contracting and other things like that, that are like the unsexy are, businesses, unsexy businesses, by the way, that are massively profitable um, and uh, in your control. 
and recession proof and we can go on and on. But like everyone's always yeah. going to need to do their laundry. <laughs> Every, everyone always needs their water to work, their electricity to work, their Wi-Fi to work. Right. Like everybody now, like everyone, believe me, it is the amount of money that people are going to spend on their homes has j- still just started. Oh, it's wild. What, what is going to happen? It's crazy. So, yeah. but, but like, I don't want to, I don't want to go off on a tangent because that's a whole nother conversation, but let's, let's say that 15% of entrepreneurs turns into 45 and a greater preponderance of those are in the more risky sectors, right? And, and the grand slam strikeouts and the ratio stays the same. You now went from 12% of the population failing 12 of the 15 to 36% of the population failing, maybe, maybe a larger percentage. Can, can a society that can barely pay and absorb the 12% is now going to be asked to absorb three times as much of still providing their health care, their education, and everything else with zero contribution coming in because they just lost everything? Like, and yeah, this is, I'm not arguing against entrepreneurship. I just want to be crystal clear. I'm just saying that there are a lot of unintended consequences on a macro basis that are not considered in today's society that I think need to be taught. Also, I think there's a misconception because we hear it a lot that if you are an entrepreneur and consider yourself an entrepreneur, that you're unemployable. But I don't think that's necessarily true. I mean, it could be, but like you can always, what I'm saying is if you fail, like, let's say you pursue something and you fail, right? You, you're still gaining certain skills that any other company would want, would die to have, right? Like whatever it might be, sales, engineering, you know, take your pick. So as negative as I just was, now I'm going to be as positive in that response. Never before have we seen more entrepreneurial people that don't that also want to embrace doing it together as a team. Like I don't I don't think everybody is like, hey, you know what? I can be the CEO who understands finance and modeling and sales, and I'm going to do everything, and then everybody else is a layer below. You're seeing really talented people come together and yin-yang each other and complement one another uh, and teams that are more complementary. So you can have now multiple entrepreneurs, which can accelerate, de-risk a business, increase the likelihood for success, make bigger winners, potentially scale even faster. Like I think there are, and like I said, not everything is a negative, right? There are like positive consequences for a lot of this as well. I think now that the sector is more mature, there's, there's a willingness, especially among the younger people, to just win. Like they don't have to be the CEO. They, but if they're part of like that founding team, and not just because of the equity, but because of the the uh, vision and the belief and the and the contribution together, I do think that that is the positive side of a lot of this. And I think you're going to see better teams built than you ever could have even ten years ago. Yeah. Right. So kind of going a little bit back, I want to kind of get into your mindset a little bit. You know, you, you were interning at BBDO, everything was going well. You did say that your vision kind of coming out of college was, I don't want to you know, necessarily work for somebody and I want to have this grand kind of life that I don't have to worry about. No, no, no. By that. the way, I was happy working for somebody else as long as they were paying me. I want to be yeah. crystal clear on that. Okay. So on that topic, 
they were paying you, but did you see, like, I think something that happens for people that are, you know, wildly ambitious and have big dreams is if they're doing something and they don't see kind of how the future is going to play out in terms of getting them to that point, then it's easy to just jump ship and be like, I'm going to do something else. I'm going to do something else and just keep jumping around. Right. And so well, I'm just there. Yeah. That, no, but now, now this is great because yeah. now we can get into this. So when I went into marketing and media, I also knew it's the worst paying job in the world. <laughs> like, no, 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 no. Like accountants, when account everybody who was coming out of Binghamton working for the big six at that point, by the way, I'll really date myself. This is 93. Um, and those guys were starting salaries, 38,000 to 41. And by the way, the reason I remember that is because my starting salary was $20,000 with no overtime. $20,000, $263.38 a week. Just think about that and having to live in New York. Even in 1993. And being like an Italian who likes to eat. It's hard. It's hard to live. You have, no, I, we can go down that. There's, <laughs> and, and I like to go out. I like to drink. I like, I, I like to have a good time. Exactly. So um, little did I realize how, how important an expense account was going to be very soon <laughs> after that. But um, the let me say this. is I went to my dad and I was like, dad, I don't know whether I really should do this um, because – you know, it's $20,000 a year, like it's insanely low. Or I could really, I like I double major and I'm like, I can do the finance route and probably make 85 to 125 very quickly. And my dad, you know, doesn't understand, he had no specificity around that or exposure or understanding of, of, of the actual responsibilities of either of those jobs. And I fully expected my dad to be like, take the money like go into finance. And he challenged me. And he, cause every time I went, I asked for my dad for advice, he would come back with a challenge, never an answer, but a challenge. And he goes, you think you're really so fucking smart. Right. And, um, sorry, it's a Brooklyn thing. I, every once in a while, it's very different. Yeah. We don't allow cussing on this show, but we'll let it, I'm just kidding. Exactly. <laughs> we, we, we encourage it. We prefer it. So, so, and by the way, I, it like, for me, it's like a normal adjective and adverb. Yeah. Same. So yeah. You're good. Just, Let's in easily. I prefer so, it. So, you know, he's like, you're so, if you think you're so fucking smart, he goes, then, you know, take the job. Who cares about how much you make now? But prove it later. Like, if you're so good, you're going to make the money. Now, by the way, like, I, you know, I have a pretty big ego, but I was like, yeah, like, but then you start questioning. You're like, ooh, like, do I really want to take on that? <laughs> like, you know, am I, do I want to be Aaron judge and turn down $230 million or do I want to like then put it on the line or like, do I take yeah. the check? Yeah. And, you know, and coming from where I came from walking away from the check was even scarier, but you know what? That was the old, that was the inflection point where I bet on myself and I was never going to use, I, I, I bet on my passion and my capabilities and aligning. And I knew I was going to go all in to give it my best shot. Yeah. As scary as that was going to be and as challenging as that was going to be, that was a decision I made very early. But so okay, you clearly had a passion for it. Were there people telling you, because I think this is an important thing too, people telling you that you're good at it, that, hey, you, you should go down this route because you have these skills or you have this knack for it or whatever? Or, or, did, or was it just purely like you're intrinsically, I'm like, hey, I'm passionate about this. I'll figure it out. Positive feedback was not a very big thing in corporate anything back then. So no one was telling me I was good at it, to be really frank. Um, 
thankfully, I didn't care that I did that. Nobody told me that. Like I just wanted it, and I wanted to do something I liked, because I did realize that it didn't matter. I wasn't running out of the office. Like I was like, I wanted to be there. I wanted to learn. I wanted to do extra product projects. I wanted to be exposed to the higher levels. Like I knew if I got my shot, if, if somebody cracked the door open, I was going to kick it the F down, like period, end of story. Like I just needed that crack. Mm. And I believed if I, if I did something that I really had the fire for, I was going to make those cracks. Mm-hmm. Like now, maybe that's a little hindsight 2020. I don't, I can't remember anymore because I'm old, but like I do, I remember being very calm. I never worried that it wasn't going to work out. Mm-hmm. Like I just didn't. And I know that sounds nuts to say because being super poor in New York was not a fun thing. But I was never worried. I knew it was going to change. Right. I just did. I, I just I think that's a big thing, though, Rich. Like I think a lot of people, whether they're entrepreneurs or whether they work for people, I think that's a big deal, right? Like just having this like gut feeling that it's going to be okay. It helps you to just keep going, right? Because a lot of times, especially now, I think you know, your generation, my parents' generation, it was a little different. They just had to do it. They had to survive. They had no choice, right? And I mean, yes, the goal of every generation is to make the next generation's job a little easier. So Pat and I, who are, you know, millennials, I think our job is a little easier, right? And it's easier to get complacent. It's easier to just be like, ah, well, whatever. But it was different for you guys. Like you had to do it. It it wasn't like a, oh yeah, well, I'm going to pursue my passion. And if it works out, it works out. If it doesn't work out, whatever, we'll figure it out. Well, yes. And, but let's conflate a couple of things that we were, we've been talking about because I think it's, it's a little bit of that, but it's also like, you know, this generation is one of the first generations that are, that are being told it's, if you fail, it's not over for you. Could you like, I can, I like, I would have loved to have had that layer of confidence and someone telling me like, I, like I was looked at and I'm like, I know when they were, and they weren't physically handing me a check, but when they were wiring funds, it was like, it's on, like it's, you are like under the friggin' microscope. Like it wasn't like, Oh, don't worry. Don't, we're going to, we're here to like, let's do it. Like, you know, I'm like, you know, it was, <laughs> there was none of that. And you know, I do, I, I, I think we actually don't do people any favors by, and I'm going to talk out of both sides of my mouth here because <laughs> there's nothing more mentally challenging than, than building a business, than, than building a business, period. There's nothing. Like, you don't sleep if you're really good because you're caring about everybody else. Like, I try and explain this to somebody. It's like, I, I for 20 years at Complex, I, I, I really didn't sleep. Like I slept, but even it was like light sleep. Because if you fuck up at any other job in the company, you lose your job. And you fuck up your family. I fuck up. I fuck up other people's lives and families. Like, not. I don't think everybody thinks that way. But I did. And 
First of all, I'm sweating thinking about that. Like literally right now, like literally sweating thinking about that because that pit in your stomach, that, that check and balance in your head makes you, forces you into being so pragmatic that you have to increase the batting average, that you have to go the extra layer of anal- analysis. You have to go the extra layer of effort to do every single thing possibly right. You can't take anything for granted. You have to be an obsessive compulsive. You have to be neurotic beyond belief. You have to put everybody in front of you, whether it's your employees, your investors, your family. You are last 24-7. Rich, isn't that physically and mentally deteriorating, though? It's the worst thing that anyone could do. to you. Like, it's the worst choice in the world to make from a physical perspective. Right. I know that's not a sexy thing to talk about these days. Well, no, that's why we want to talk about it. And, you know, if if I knew what I know now, would I do it again? Of course, because I've changed the course of my family's lives and hopefully my kids' kids' lives. And that you don't many, so few people on this planet get that shot that there's no way I wouldn't take it. And, and when I say that also, I don't just mean my family, but like my people who came along with me for 15, 17 years and have had two different exits and changed the course of, and mil, you know, like, you know, their kids' colleges are paid and their houses are paid off and, you know, they're playing with house money. And that's an amazing thing. But that level doesn't come without it's not one sacrifice and it's not one time it's constant sacrifices every day every month every year and how do you, you know, manage that pressure in that situation he drinks wine like he's doing right now no, I mean, yeah, like um <laughs> you, you talk about the positive I, I, side I, of like I, 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 like i didn't always do it well um you know, I look, first of all, I'm a, Italian. So like I have a temper and a half, um, <laughs> but you know, the one thing that I, I, how I managed it and it probably self-inflicted more than, than outwardly is, um, another thing from my, by the way, my dad will just keep coming up. Like, it's just, it just, it just will. Um, I was never allowed to start any conversation with somebody else's fault. Like, let me tell you about what just happened. Or do you believe what that person did? Like if I started anything with my finger out, the conversation was dead. It didn't matter. I could be bleeding. Like it didn't like never started this way. Ideally it started like he goes, you know, worst case I'll allow a conversation to have if you're in the middle, but ideally everything starts here. You blame yourself first. You talk about what goes on. You take accountability and responsibility first. If you don't start there, we're not having a conversation. And I took that to heart, not just on a micro basis, but on a macro basis. And for better or worse, for my own health and for better or worse in my behavior and other things like that, like my job, I felt like was to be the protector, the umbrella for everybody, because we needed to take massive risks but in order to make everybody else feel comfortable, they couldn't absorb the same level of risk I did. So I had to absorb the big risk from the board and the investors and never let that trickle down. 
so they could have the confidence to be more um, aggressive than they would normally be. Like the entrepreneur is, is foundationally more aggressive than other people. So, but I had to use a lot of that just to temper and protect everybody else to enable everybody else to be more aggressive. Sorry, that's a weird, that was a very long way to get around, but it's, that's another thing that doesn't get talked about is, you know, you can't go in there mea culpa. Like, you know, it's, you go walk in and go, I fucked up to your board, to your team, inside and outside, right? Like, you know, you take the responsibility and you give the praise. And that is another, that's another layer to it that people don't like to talk about. You know, we're probably going to title this podcast, Don't Become a Founder, which I love. Because <laughs> um, number one. Like, I hope I'm trying to temper it. There's you're doing, so you're doing a great job. No, no, you're doing a great job. But no, but seriously, because, and, I, and I'm not joking, because after four and a half years of Pat and I doing this, I mean, we've talked to 200 something plus people at this point, and it is a common theme, right? And not maybe directly like you're putting it, which I appreciate, but when you hear these stories, you think to yourself, you have to give up so much of your personal life, of your you know, uh, spiritual life at times of your emotional life. I mean, you're literally like you kind of put it, you're the last person that you give a shit about. And that's that's not necessarily a good thing. You know, it's really not, you know, maybe it does shorten your life a little bit. It's, it's not, you know, it's, it's just, it's accepting that it's not going to be good and it's not going to be healthy, Yep. but it's, you're making a trade-off. You're making a decision to go, I'm not going to bitch about it. Right. That's the course I'm taking. This is what I'm willing to tolerate um, in order to get the other side. Yeah. And this is the thing about this, not to go back to the societal stuff all over again, but, um, you know, we, we, we say every, anybody can choose to do whatever they want, but we don't talk about the second part of it is – the word choose or choice comes with a downside. You don't get the upside without absorbing the responsibility and accountability of the downside. Mm-hmm. But we don't like to talk about that right. nowadays. Like it's, you know, that's not a, that's not the, the fair thing to say mm-hmm. or the popular thing to say. And it's like, you know what? Like I, I tell everybody all the time. I'm like, you, you go for it. But be ready to make it about more than yourself or don't bother. Right. You know, it, it's I, I'm just thinking back to what, you know, Professor Goldberger told you about, like, you know, you're not an accountant. I think on the flip side, I think personality wise, human beings, they just know when there's something more there. And it's not more or less, frankly, the word more is wrong. But I think they know when they are an entrepreneur. Right. I just, it's, it's, I just think it's a feeling above all the things that we've talked about, all the factors you need to accept. I think you just feel inside you that if you're doing anything else, you're not going to be content. And I can almost guarantee, and I mean, we just met, you know, but I think you were happy despite all this stuff, despite all this stress, there was nothing else you could do. Right. And I think that's a 
big deal. That is what I think it takes to win. Is like you have to be happy with with whatever you're doing, and that's at the core of it. Yeah. Oh, look, it fed into a proof point for me. Like, you know, my dad was like, oh, you think you're so smart? Then go make it work, right? Then go win. And I think you, there's, the, there's the vision aspect of, of uh, entrepreneurship. But then, you know, it's like, it's funny. I've only spoken to this about with other people, like, and not just successful entrepreneurs, but just entrepreneurs in general. And it's like the difference between like companies that have worked, not people, but companies that have worked and not worked, you, you have to see it. And I'm not talking about believing and having conviction in the vision. That's not what I'm talking about. You have to like see how it's going to work. And it's, it's, and I know that sounds so weird, but like, it's like, um, you know, when batters talk about like seeing the ball slow down or like when someone throws a slider, you see the the hole because of the spin, like you, you, you can see how it's all going to work, how all the decisions and all the moves you've made and you have all the if thens in your head so that you can, you're like, I'm going to get there. Like I would sit there and tell my board, here's what we're going to do on the top line. Here's what we're going to do on the bottom line. And like, honestly, I don't think I ever missed either one by more than 2% ever. Now, did we always get there the same way? No, but almost every year we got almost exactly there every single time. And Part of that, I can't decide whether I willed it to be or I was a good reader of the of the sit of the macro and micro situations going on. But I, I realistically, there's a there's something about seeing it and having an ability to understand how to take a lot of information, toss aside 80% that is either out of your control or not directly. Um, driving the business to pick the right drivers and then know that your decisions have optimized against those and in its totality to actually deliver a very strong business. I know that was a lot, but Mm -hmm. like that's the way I would go into every board meeting, every budget meeting, every, you know, modeling session. Like it's, you know, you have to think about more aspects than anybody. You have to think about time continuums of like the macro environment and your individual product and its adoption in the audience. And and you have to think about all of the different products and then the prioritization and the sequencing of those launches and how that adoption is going to factor in. It's, it's, it's having an ability to always be a quantitative analysis of qualitative things and a qualitative layer to increase the likelihood and and the quality of the quantitatives is what well. I know that sounds really weird. No, I get it. Yeah. You get where I'm going with that? Yeah. And to me, when I hear people talk like that about their businesses, those are the ones I bet on. Right. So let's kind of take it a little bit back to the story of like, you know, you kind of coming into your kind of career. What did you what did you do kind of in those years prior to complex um, after the internship? And, and, and I think, you know, maybe, maybe we could talk about like how you and Mark Echo, who started Complex Magazine, uh, I think in early 2000s, uh, how you guys met and started working together. So um, 
I was at an agency at Saatchi and Saatchi and I had a shot to get into, like I had a couple of my uh, people I worked with telling me, you got to get into sales. So um, they had set up some interviews. I was very young. I was only 23 and a half, 24 years old. And I know that doesn't sound young now, but it, back then, like all salespeople were like 35 years old, had like 10 years of agency experience, a couple of years of small sales, and then you get into big corporate stuff. And there was a job opening at Men's Journal at uh, Wenner Media, which is Men's Journal, Rolling Stone, and Us Magazine at that point. And um, I, I had an opportunity to go in and interview for this. And it's a qu good, quick little story, by the way, because it says a lot about opportunities and how to maximize them and the challenges that you're faced and, and how it's changed. So I showed up at 7.30 a.m. for an 8.15 interview because I was nervous as shit. I wore my horrible blue suit with the white shirt and the yellow tie from Sears. And it was like, dude, it was so terrible. <laughs> and because I had no money. So I showed up and I was supposed to meet with the advertising director, this guy named Chris Sachs. And this like big dude comes in, like very sporty dude. This guy named Mark McDonald, who was the publisher of Men's Journal. And he's walking in at like 7.35 and he goes, oh, what, what are you here for? And I was like, I'm interviewing for um, an advertising job at Men's Journal, Chris Sachs. Uh, and he goes, oh, he's, Chris won't be in for a long time. He goes, why don't you just come into my office? And I'm like, shit, I didn't prepare for this guy. I prepared for Chris Sachs. I called up some friends and whatever. And I walk in and I, dude, Mark McDonald looks like George Brett. Right. You walk into his office, got this bit, he's got bats and balls and like, and he's this like rough and tumble, very direct guy, huge presence, like just dominating. And I'm 23 years old. Right. And he looks at my, he goes, all right, give me your resume, paper resume. Right. Back in the day, this is 1995. I hand him my resume and he goes, uh, I'm, I don't understand. He goes, why am I even talking to you? And I go, what, what, what do you mean? And he's like, you've been a media planner for like two years and you have no sales experience. This is, this is the New England territory for men's journal, outdoor, Timberland, BMW. Like you have no business being here. And I'm like, I was ready to like shut it down. <laughs> right. And I'm just like, he's crushing me. And I didn't think he was testing me, but I just was like, I don't know how many of these shots I'm going to get. My dad doesn't play golf with the right people. He doesn't know anybody. I'm like, I, I got to go for it. So I'm looking around and I go, Mark, you know what? Let me say something to you. I go, Men's Journal is a very good publication. You're like the Washington Redskins, right? Like you went like nine and seven and you're sitting in the middle of the draft. You like law, you didn't make the playoffs, whatever. You're behind outside magazine and men's health. You're, so you're like third, right? The Giants and like the Eagles, right? And I go, you have an opportunity going into the draft and you're sitting there. You go, oh, I can just add a left tackle and maybe we go 10 and six, but you get bounced in the divisional round. I'm trying to make a sports analogy to this guy because I'm like, he's going to get it. I go, but you're sitting there and you have the opportunity to draft me and Right now, I don't look like I didn't run the 40 and 4-2. I didn't do it. But I'm going to tell you, you're going to you're going to build a dynasty. You're going to you're going to win three or four championships over the next 10 years. 
So do you want to have an incremental win and take the safe route? Or do you want to really go for it and build a dynasty? And he looks at me and he's shaking his head. And I'm like, motherfucker, I just got this guy. I got him. I just got this guy on the hook. And he goes, well, we know you can bullshit, but it hasn't changed one goddamn thing about your fucking resume and lack of experience. That's what I was about to say. I was like, how are you going to back that up? If you, actually- <laughs> Shut me. But you know what's funny? Like we, we, like we, we, he totally changed the tone of the meeting, by the way. Like then all of a sudden he was just like, you know what? I'm not going to just sit there and question you. I'm not going to push you. Like, we're going to talk about things. I want to understand it. Two days later, I got the job. And that job leveled me up and took me to, I had no business getting that job. He was right. I had no business getting that job, but they liked me. Chris took me under his wing, helped me grow, went to National Geographic Adventure, launched a magazine and a new brand for them. I learned how to launch a brand. I learned how to sell brand, not just audience. And then we had won a national magazine award uh, in my fourth year at Nat Geo, uh, which was a big thing back then. And we threw a party and I ran into this guy, Rob Weinstein, and who was the VP of marketing at Echo Unlimited, the Rhino 1972. And he goes, you got to meet Seth and Mark, like Seth Gersberg, Mark Echo. And he's like, they they just launched this magazine. It was the the cover with Uncle Junior and Nas on one cover and, and the other you flip it upside down and it was Rosaria Dawson. It was a buyer's guide. And I was like, oh shit, I saw it. And he goes, oh, what'd you think? I'm like, dude, it's like the Truman show. It was like the greatest concept ever with the shittiest fucking execution I've ever seen. (laughs) And he's like, you should tell them that. And uh, so we set up a meeting. We end up, I ended up having a meeting uh, with, with Seth first. And we just screamed at each other for three and a half hours and at the end, he was like, all right, I need you to come here and fix everything that you just told me was, was wrong with everything that we've done. And uh, I met Mark and I fell in love with Mark. Like Mark is just so talented, so brilliant. Like, you know, like his design ideas and reference and understanding of culture was off the charts. But I was like, here's what you really need to do. Like, and I explained like concentric circles and how to market that and how to sell that. And then you know, it was just, it was, it was kismet. Like it just all worked out. Like if I hadn't thrown a party from winning a national magazine award, I don't know if I ever meet Rob Weinstein and yeah. I don't know if I ever meet those guys. And I don't know if I, complex. I, thought, I could be wrong, but I thought I read somewhere that you were at vibe magazine before Never. that you were not. Okay. So it must've been no. a, a wrong no. article. I, I previously it had been men's journal, Rolling Stone and, uh, Nacho adventure. So previously just big corporate jobs, learning and honing the business side. And then with, with complex, I got to go back to a lot of the, my passion points, hip hop, sneakers, like style, art, design, all those things that I grew up loving, but I had to put in the box to yeah. kind of be a corporate person. So that's another thing is I didn't realize like you got to get a little lucky where all these things came together. And I got a chance to do my passions organically with all of this big corporate experience that really helped prepare me to run the whole thing. Mm. Right. And that was my point earlier. It was like, you know, you're, you're, no matter what you're doing, you're building a certain skill set that you can apply eventually to a passion or something like that. And it's not always like, 
you know, coming out of college that you can necessarily do exactly what you're passionate about, but at least build certain skills that you can apply to, 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 to really anything at some point, so, right? So what, what's the takeaway of the least used word in today's society um, that everyone needs a whole lot more of? Patience, right? Patience. Patience for yourself. Patience for your career to develop. Patience for people to realize those things. You know, grinding, I'm not saying that someone doesn't have an axe to grind, but if you go in and grind for three months and kill your job, you are not ready for a promotion. It's three months. Like, like, I'm sorry. Like, that's the beginning. You've set a great precedent. You had step one. Now follow through on step two, three, and four, Mm -hmm. right? And show everybody Take on those responsibilities before you get the title bump, before you get the money. Don't just kill your job and execute the hell out of it. Um, you know, again, very unpopular things to say. I'm sorry, but <laughs> that's the way I grew up. And it was very direct. And I always tried to be as direct as possible, not in an insulting way, but yeah. it's like, you know what? It's, I know I wouldn't challenge anybody who I didn't think would actually go and earn it. I never did that. I never challenged somebody I knew would just dust off and not do it. Like some people need that challenge. And I don't think we challenge the younger generation enough in a supportive way, in the right way, in an honest and a direct way, rather than um, make the path of least resistance and then complain about it on the other side from a management perspective. Rich, in those jobs that you had prior to starting Complex, did you ever think to yourself that you will eventually do your own thing and start your own company or not? Um, you know, I was very lucky. Like I said, I got into sales very young. So I started making crazy money very young. And, and then I got promoted pretty quickly and had people under me like pretty quickly. So I was doing exceptionally well. And I, I was enjoying the elevation. I was enjoying the, um, the growth, the impact and influence I had on those businesses. I didn't need to be the, the head of something at that time yet because I was still young on a relative basis. Um, I didn't, I, I'll be honest, I didn't, I know that's, I, it doesn't, you know, fit with a little bit of my personality, but <laughs> Like I, I didn't sit there and said, like, I have to have my own thing. Like I, I wasn't saying that. Um, in fact, I give, you know, Seth a lot of credit and Mark, but Seth a lot more in that, in the, in the, in Mark was more helpful with, with the magazine and the brand, but Seth was very integral in challenging me, um, to be, think bigger of not just the brand, but myself as well, and challenging me to take more on, take, be more responsible, be more aggressive, um, learn more, do better. Um, you know, I don't, there's no way I would be where I am if, if, you know, Echo was a very challenging environment. Um, it was like sink or die. I mean, it was, I mean, I mean, you got no time, no support. And it was like, it was like, I'm going to, I'm going to put you in a straitjacket, throw you in the deep end of the pool in the dark 
And by the way, not just get out, but get out and figure out how to bring everybody else along and write me a check and hand me money. Like that was, that was echo, right? Like that was the echo of the company. And that enabled me, I needed that level of challenge. If I went to a bigger corporate environment, I would not have been as effective of a entrepreneur without that level of challenge. I needed someone to get in my face and replace my dad the way he used to challenge me in my life from a business perspective. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. Kind of just like, it's almost like you're like seeking that kind of person in your life, whether it's in career or just like friends or family. And and I think, you know, having that kind of mindset you know, surrounding yourself with the right people is such a huge integral part of that growth, right? Um, but so, you, so when you join, so it's it's a magazine, and then at what point does the kind of concept for complex media come come about? And I guess we could start there, and then we can go, yeah, go, go about how. So how sorry, I'm some more wine. Um, so, <laughs> what are so, you drinking? Uh, we got to know. We're drinking some very nice 2007 uh, Rioja Reserve. Okay. Uh, Tonadina is unbelievable, by the way. Um, big fan. So, uh, and by the way, it's the guy who grew up drinking like Lancers. So, uh, <laughs> long way from that respect. Um, but uh, that's that's a that's a good question. Um, you know, um, at, like that experience. Um, I, I I like. I do need those challenges. I, I can't, I don't, I don't work well in easy environments. Um, like I need that, um, that I need, I need to be challenged personally. I need to be like almost not afraid, but like, oh my God, like, you know, uh, think about how big something can be. Right. Like that, that pushed to not, um, not be comfortable because I'm lucky enough that I've been, I'm pretty good at my job. I know how to do those things. Like I can, if I wanted to kind of putt along, I wouldn't have to work that hard to still be a very effective executive. Yes. But there's not a chance in the world if I wasn't in the environment, not just the opportunity, because that, that, that's another thing that doesn't get spoken. There's the opportunity, but are, do you have the correct environment around you? The investors, the, the board, your boss, like, you know, whoever you're, you know, whoever you're accountable to, um, I actually, and again, this is one of those things. It's a personal intellectual, honest thing. Some people need just support, right? Like they need blind support. They're like, I don't like being challenged. Like I'm going to fold. It's like, I don't need more insecurity. Like I need the opposite. I need someone like on me, like white on race. And, um, like that, that it, it, it's a hard thing to explain, but how are you going to reach the heights just on your own fuel? Like that's probably the best way to say it. Like, I think yeah, there's you- a, there's a saying or there's a quote, you know, no, no bird soars too high if he soars with his own wings. 
Right. It's kind of like, it's, it's, I think this is like Michael Jordan poster I used to have. And that was the quote at the bottom, but I love that quote. It's a, it's a great one. And it's true, you know, and I don't know. I'm just, look, I, I can't tell you how lucky I am because I realized the context is so important to someone like me. Like I'm not, I wouldn't be successful in any situation. I'm not like my ego wouldn't allow me to say that. Like I need the right situation. I need a lot of leeway because I'm very creative also. Like my, my solutions are very rarely what other people's solutions are. My approach is very rarely what other people's are. Um, and this is, and I know you keep going back to this, but it's like, I have a lot of um, foundationally entrepreneurial traits, but ironically, I have a very, um, uh, team family cancer oriented personality. So it's this dichotomy that, and that dichotomy blossomed because of the opportunity itself and the context. It was the right, all the right pieces fell into place. I'm going to give, I'm going to give that context a lot of credit right. more so than just myself. Gotcha. And so I guess, um, so I Sorry, the part of the, no, no, no. And part even, of the question was, I was kind of curious, you know, all these, you know, this opportunity and the context, all this stuff converging, like at what point did kind of the concept for complex, uh, media come about? Cause that was obviously a different kind of concept than the magazine that market started. Well, market set it, it, started. It, was all, it was very related to this, right? Like, um, we had just broken even at the end of 2006. And by the way, for an independent magazine, that was run by a fashion magazine that was wildly unfunded to break even in three and a half years with no corporate leverage or blow in cards from like other magazines, the way GQ used to launch details or, you know, yeah. like all those, like any of that. We, I went to Seth and this guy named, and believe it or not, his name was Dick Thrush. That was or the CFO. <laughs> I swear to God, that's his incredible. Name. Swear to God, it's Dick Thrush. Um, oh, and I went to him and I'm like, good news, bad news, guys. He good could have, news. he could have gone by Richard, by the way, but he didn't want to. No, right? no, no, absolutely not. <laughs> Why would you go with Richard when you give me dick? <laughs> it's just so much better. Yeah. Um, and by the way, like central casting for a CFO also, like the nicest guy you've ever met in your life. Yeah. Um, he, um, I go good news, bad news, guys. Good news is we broke even. The bad news is I'm not going to start paying you back next year. I can't sit here and tell the buyers or the press that we are the most influential youth culture brand if we are just a magazine when print is no longer the most relevant form of delivering content to youth culture in 2006, 2007. I'm like, we're going to launch into digital. Now, granted, you got to remember the landscape back then. You had AOL. And, yep. um, and, Yahoo uh, and those guys, and Yahoo were the two big portals. So it was portals, nothing in between and a whole bunch of verticalized ad networks, but they were trash. They yep. were vertical ad networks in the sense of like, Oh, women like, yep. Oh, you mean half the planet that's vertical? Right. Like, come on. Not to mention like, you know, social kind of just starting to really take well, off. No, social hadn't really started yet. It like, okay. I mean, Friendster was around. MySpace was just beginning to bubble up, but like, that, and it was uh, it was also very targeted to a demographic. So it was not ubiquitous quite yet, right? Facebook hadn't really popped off yet. Oh, yeah. So 
So it was literally just those distribution channels. And I was like, all right, you know what? The web is democratized. So instead of going after scale, the way every the portals were or verticalized ad networks, my strategy, again, not to be consistent with, I think differently than everybody. Mine was like, let's go after the best in class voices because they remind me of the best in class magazine writers because that content is what provides the most affluent, differentiated thought leader audience. So let's do the same for our sectors, for sneakers, style, art, design, music, and culture. So let's go get the best in class sites across this. Now, granted, I didn't see social media coming, knowing that best in class voices were now going to lead <laughs> communities and, and all of that traffic was going to further explode. All it did, it took, our, our plan was right. Our thesis was right. But it took something that might have taken 15 years and let us do it in three. Yeah. Right. It's like kind of like what COVID did for a lot of companies, like for Zoom and other like, you know, it's like Zoom might have ended up being a great company, but like it, COVID made 10 years happen in a year. It accelerated it. Yep. Right. So, it, I mean, but you have to be the proof point. Right. So I was like, all right, we're going to go and do this now. And complex is going to be the hub and all the spokes are going to be the individual verticals. And I was like, this is going to make sense because what we're going to do is take the credibility of complex magazine and the namesake and put it across the entire network so that when a buyer comes, they're buying our brand name across all eyeballs instead of buying individuals, they're buying the group. So the group from an advertising perspective gets the cachet of complex and the branding of that and its sales force and like all the, the momentum we had in the marketplace, plus best in class support of like, hey, here's great ways to think about distributing your content. Here's let's cross pollinate the sites from an audience perspective, like all the tr like the tricks before social exploded. Yeah. The, but the key was is aggregating and curating the best collection of the most influential voices. People like SK from Na Right, Matt from Nice Kicks, um, um, you know, Slam X, Adam from Slam X Hype was like, I mean, these were like, if somebody put something on there, that was like Kim Kardashian saying like, this is the best like makeup, right? Like it was like, they if they if Matt called out that sneaker, it was hot as hell. Mm -hmm. And, but they needed the scale, they needed to be organized and professionalized. And we had all of that. And then without, and because of the pressure of the business side of not having a ton of capital, I was only able to use what the profits were going to be. So it was only going to be about a million and a half bucks. I couldn't go buy these guys. So I'm like, let's set up a network where I have no cost structure, but we just do very good rev shares back to these guys. So I was able to, we had the right qualitative strategy of the organization and curation, but we had the right business model that wasn't capital intensive that allowed us to scale very quickly. Because if it was a, it was an own and operated only, I would right. have never been able to do all those tuck-ins. But right. because of the right structure, we were able to scale over the next three years mm -hmm. and become right. the most important cultural but like, also, I think that's like one, obviously one big important piece of it is that you had the foundation to, to scale. 
But then, you know, we've seen so many media companies come and go and, you know, kind of maybe lose kind of sight of why they even started or just like become kind of old news and not really have a good pulse on like culture anymore. We see that all the time. But obviously Complex has been able to really just like, I don't want to say adapt, but because Complex is more of a driver of culture right. at some point, right? Like you're not adapting, you're, you're driving the culture we're itself. Defining, we're defining where everybody You're defining else. it. And so why, how have you been able to structure it from that perspective? Like not the foundation, but the, 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 the way to stay on top of it and relevant is an understatement to be the leader of it. I'm going to give you the simplest answer in the world and your mind's going to get blown. I'm ready. Like, it's not like I'm not that smart. I just I'm good at making things simple. Right. So I, I just thought like uh, the biggest mistake magazines made and why they became irrelevant is because they allowed themselves to be defined by their distribution platform rather than going. We have the most affluent audience. We have the most influence. We start every smart conversation. But by the way, we're not going to now be beholden to the fact that we were just a piece of paper. Right. Like which made no sense to me, but they allowed themselves to be defined. So my viewpoint is, is we are we were the not even if we weren't first in market, we were always the biggest and we were driving what were formerly niches or subcultures into the mainstream. So we would take the light and put it on those, not just the people, but those conversations and get the credit that these sectors as its entirety deserve from an influence of youth culture. So by the way, the topics never needed to change because we were always early in defining those conversations. So the topics don't change. And we always had the tone, right? Right. Like we had this very inclusive versus that, like say like, um, and no shots advice, but they were always dark and exclusive versus include. We were very inclusive. We're fun we're like the cool older brother or cousin who would like bring you along. So we had the tone right and we had the topic right. Don't change those. So what do you change? You change your distribution platform and your formats. You stay true. You just bring those things along and that enables you to bring your audience along because they don't love you for the distribution or the format. They love you for the tone and the topic. Yeah. It's not that. What, what did I just say that's complicated? Yes, it's, it's not name. It's, it's crazy how that's it. <laughs> no, but it's super. But everybody, nobody understands that. Like, it's we've always stayed true to our topic and our tone, yep. and we've always defined the category, and then we innovated in distribution and formats, and that's how you. That's how you're able to carry and move your audience from 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 platform to platform and format to format. It's a very simple thing. So we've seen technology just change so much over the course of the last like 15 years, right? And we're just seeing it every day. There's something new like, you know, metaverse and NFTs and all these like things that are happening now, right? And and it sounds like what you're saying is if as long as you have the tone and the topics and kind of that nailed and down brand. And, and the, the brand, brand nailed down, the distribution, the t- technology, as it changes, all you're doing is just kind of finding different avenues to get that word well, out, right? You're not finding different. You're fi- You have to ask yourself. And when I enter this, am I checking a box? Am I just putting my brand up on a new platform? Or am I innovating? Am I being true to who I am and how I say it? Am I being true to my brand and my audience and my tone? And, and how unique am I on this new platform? I'd rather, like, I'm never, we never, by the way, like when new social platforms come out, we are very rarely the first person to participate. We're not late. 
but we're usually like third, fourth, fifth. But because when we enter, we enter in a very differentiated way. We don't check a box and participate to participate the way everybody else does. We never follow, right? So we stay true to being an innovator, to defining. So if we're going to define a category and bring sneakers to the mainstream, we're also going to do it in a very unique way so that Complex, the brand, gets the credit for doing that with the consumer and with the marketplace in general. So you have to you have, you have to be incredibly deliberate. Like I know I come off very informal, but I am I have mental problems, obviously, as you could say. Like I like I you to say you have to overthink and overanalyze this and be true and be different and always come back to those tenants. Know where you can be flexible. And you know, like Bezos says it's the best, right? Like you are incredibly rigid about your strategy and incredibly um, fluid about your tactics. Most people are the exact opposite. We're always the former, never the latter. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, so, and so being a pioneer from kind of, you know, where things were before with magazines and print and going into like digital what is what is your kind of outlook on where things are going from here? I'm curious to hear like what your thoughts are on okay, technologies are changing, new distribution, new new places, but how do you see the consumption of media uh changing? Um it's a big question. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, well, first of all, how long you got? No, I'm just uh, <laughs> like so no, look, um I'm gonna have to answer it in in parts because it really is I, I don't know if we've ever seen, um, you know how we were talking about like for entrepreneurs or kids coming at us, there's never been a lower barrier to entry, but more, but, but harder to define a white space or your competitive advantage. That is also true for media, right? Like anybody can become a creator these days. Anybody can get an audience really fast also. Um, some, sometimes for the right reasons, sometimes for the wrong reasons. Um, Holding on to it, meaning something to them, being able to make it into a business, more challenging, more complicated. Um, Never have there been niches of niches of niches from topics before and niches of communities, but then also niches of content consumption platforms. Um, So there's 50 ways, 50. Like between all the streaming services, all the social networks, all the sub channels, all the discords and chat rooms and like, dude, you, there's not everything is fragmented and segmented to a degree we have never contemplated before. And both the platform, the format and the topics are all compoundingly fragmented and segmented on top of that. So like I, I like I've said this before, like there's no middle of anything anymore, right? So you're either like super undifferentiated and ubiquitous from a scale perspective, or you're super tiny. The next businesses that are going to win, in my viewpoint, especially from a media perspective, are gonna be the people who can aggregate related, verticalized, fragmented, and segmented audiences to have the scale of the top but remain authentic and credible and, and tied in directly to their audience. 
but be, have the economies of scale and the, and the cross-pollination of both audiences, topics, products, diversified revenue streams, you're going to have to be a house of brands. And I don't, because you're going to allow people, you have to allow people to have as verticalized of an experience with your content as ever before, whereas previously media companies would take a verticalized person coming in and try and give them as horizontal of a of an experience as possible. Those days are gone. I think you have to take from all of these this horizontal world, this flat world of distribution, you have to take them and give them a drive them down into a more verticalized way and let them get lost within that vertical. Um, and I just think the world's flipped. And I know that's nobody's talking about it like that, but to me, that's the way the world is. Rich, you had talked about you know two different exits uh, that you guys went through. How did that come about? And um, I guess how was that decision even made? Um, and kind of the effects that that had on uh, you, your your company, and the people that worked with you guys. So, well, they're both this. They're two very distinctly different uh, experiences. Uh, the first one um, in 2016, um, the, the the complete sale of the business to a JV of Verizon and Hearst happened in July of 2016. Um, and it changed the scope of everything, right? Verizon was very heavy into um, Go90. Remember Go90? Oh, yeah. Um, and there was a lot of big budgets that were being developed for youth culture content. So they, were, they got into a JV with Hearst and had just bought Awesomeness TV. And we had an opportunity to be the kind of male component to that and create a lot of cultural content for that platform. And there were big budgets to be had. And it made sense to um, exit um, for a lot of money and a very lucrative deal, but also a path forward to guarantee the transition from complex to just a, a digital player to a content and IP youth culture brand that created content everywhere and would have the biggest untethered library of, of youth culture content that anybody had ever seen because mm-hmm. yeah. right? everybody else who had done that we either got its own network where you're tied to like putting the, the, the content there we were we were going to be getting these big budgets we're going to exit return a lot of capital to our investors the management team was going to win it was a big win for everybody change my life change my family's life change the way i can now be even more aggressive from a business perspective but then, you know, Go90 went away. Verizon was like, we're not a media company. And we had to rethink the business. And rather than run Complex exclusively for cash distributions, we had an opportunity to reset that. And we started having external conversations with some very strategic companies. And SPACs came along. And we had a tremendous conversation with Jonah Peretti, who was the CEO of BuzzFeed, where we could merge our entities, bring, we would, they would bring the audience capabilities and the scale oriented brands. We would bring the cultural brands and the kind of um, longer form content development that would complement each other. And the audiences would complement each other. And we would be the largest, you know, millennial and Gen Z house of brands, not to be consistent to what we were saying before, and be able to go public, recapitalize the business, 
get Verizon and Hearst their capital back, plus be able to go forward and participate in this as a business. And um, we pulled that kabuki crazy poker game off and were able to do that as of last December 2021. So to have two very large, both strategic and big win exits within five years of one another, to me, is makes like that's where I have a lot of um, contentment and very I'm very happy that we're able to pull off some amazing things with this business and give it the chance, give the people that have built this and the brand its ch- its greatest chance to succeed and breathe and grow and leave a legacy. Mm-hmm. And so, at what point was it that you uh, stepped down from the CEO position? Uh, when we closed the deal. So, uh, you know, I had been operating it for 20 years. Um, and as we discussed, it's such a pleasurable experience building a <laughs> brand um, and a business. Um, and, you know, I, I had been looking to figure out how to exit, but I wouldn't do it until I found a new home for the business. And I created the best operating scenario for the team and the brand and this i was able to check those boxes and put myself in a situation where i can now turn around and help other people build their businesses and instead of worrying about operational stuff on a day-to-day of one business i can help the strategy of multiple businesses multiple entrepreneurs in multiple sectors yeah Amazing. Well, I'm looking at a time and I'm like, oh God, I just want to like keep talking because this is one of the longest podcasts we've done because it's just so interesting and it's such a pleasure to talk with you. I'm sorry. No, 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 not at all. Don't apologize because I think we covered a lot of really amazing stuff and and thank you so much for being so open with your experience and like wisdom and everything that you've picked up along the way. And obviously you've built an incredible business and, and, uh, you know, I'm excited to, to see it continue to evolve and um, I'm, you know, hoping that we can get together someday and, and drink some wine and, and hang out more. Uh, cheers to you. Um, but yeah, again, thank you so much, Rich. Appreciate your time and uh, looking forward to keeping in touch. And one thing I will say, I just want to say in closing, um, I think you guys do a tremendous job. Like there's uh, a lot of, uh, without being insulting to anybody, a lot of um, lookalikes and soundalikes that are out there where it's, you know, it sounds like a PR tour. What I love is you guys aren't afraid to pull the string, go deeper, ask the tougher questions and discuss the, maybe the darker side of some of this stuff rather than just the so you're um, calling us vice. No, <laughs> I didn't. I, I don't mean, I don't mean, whoa, whoa, but you know what I mean? Like, no, I, I think it, it's nice that, um, there, there needs to be a return to rawness in podcasting, in my viewpoint. And I, I don't mean that in a salacious manner. I just mean it in an intellectually honest way. Yeah. And it shouldn't be so packaged and marketed. Right. And I yeah. love the fact of what you guys brought to the table. And this was a really fun conversation. We appreciate um, that. You know, and, I, and, I, and it's not even just podcasting, Rich. I think, you know, so Pat and I are both about to be 30. And, you know, we've kind of seen both. I hate you by the way. Huh? I would kill to be 30 years old right now. Uh, well, you look great for, you look great. I, you're not even like 50, so you look great. So. I, I just turned 50. All right. Happy birthday. Um, happy birthday. But, you know, we've seen both kind of generations, the one before us and the before them, and then kind of the new generation. 
And I do think that, you know, we do live in this sort of age of censorship or, you know, high sensitivity and, you know, and I get it. You know, I think that there are definitely benefits to it, but at the same time, there's also detriments to it. Um, and I think that we just haven't fully seen the impact of that yet. And I do think COVID did accelerate that too. Um, and I think we are going to see that in the labor market. We're going to see that in just the way people lead their lives. And I'm optimistic, but I'm also concerned with where we are headed. And I think a big part of that is this like vision of, you know, I can do it and this Instagram culture and this, you know, social media instant gratification culture of like, I need to get there fast. And you said the keyword, right? Patience. We've, we've lost that. I mean, I've lost that at times, you know, I want things to happen pretty quickly too. Um, but I do think that there's something to be said about just enjoying that journey, letting things marinate a little bit because you could get to be 50 and, you know, enjoy the best wines in the world and have, have done it all. It's not that far away and you have a whole another 50 years or 37 in your case to live. And, right. Yeah, well, that's, and that's the thing I'd love to like, and I don't know whether you guys do it, but I, I always look for it whenever I listen to, you know, entrepreneurial oriented podcasts. And I listen to a lot of them um, is nobody talks about how long, like, okay, from idea to exit, how long was it? Mm-hmm. Like spend a little time, no pun intended, right. talking about that. Like, it's not just the journey or like, and don't get me wrong, you guys ask great questions, but pulling out like a one story or this or that, like, because I think a lot of the listeners at times think like, oh, I started this and then three years later, I sold it for $500 million. Right. Like, <laughs> by the way, like, th- th- like, there's like five of those, right? I mean, I know there's more, but like, I'm just saying like, those are like the aberrations right. of aberrations. Right. But the pain, the suffering, the time that it that it takes from origination to building to exit if you're ever lucky enough to do it is is so much longer and these kids need to be reminded of that right. not 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 in a negative sense it's just yeah. Don't gloss over it. Right. right? Exactly. I, I, I think mean, a lot of people are in the inspir a lot of content people are in the inspiration business and they're just trying to like, you know, kind of kinda throw this like false narrative out there just to like for the sake of inspiring people. But we believe like the rawness is is the true inspiration because people a lot of people are already inspired. They just need certain tools. And part of that one of those tools is the reality of it all in order to just go out there and execute on and and take action on certain things, right? Like nobody needs more of these, like, you know, kind of happy go lucky, like bullshit business, inspirational stuff. The look, if, if, if the podcast is filled with a whole bunch of like phrases of the day, I have news for you. Like no one's going to learn anything, right? right? Because it's all out there. Like, that's what I like about you guys. You're pulling the string on some of these stories and going, whoa, whoa, wait, like now, like, but what does that really mean? Like why, like, why was that challenging? Like, you know, it's like, how does your personality not not influence the business, but when when does it come to light? What 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 specific traits were able to either hold up the business or bring the business down at different times, mm-hmm. right? And there's and there's both sides of that, right? right? Yeah. Um, you know, like I think complex could have been a lot bigger if I was more confident in the beginning. Like the fact that I was not an entrepreneur by breed and the world was a different place and you weren't encouraged as an entrepreneur 
to be like unchallenged, like I'm scared. I don't know what I'm doing. It's not all good. It's not all up and to the right. Like that's a new thing. That was not the case 10 years ago. Like you couldn't go out there and be like, I need help. I need a mental. Could you imagine an entrepreneur going to and being like, I need a mental break. Are you like, that would have been hysterical. No, that was not happening. Like, and I just, you know, I, I, I know that it should have been three to five times the size. That's what keeps me up at night still. Like, I know it was like, this was ridiculous. It was an amazing ever. I still feel like I fell short. Like that's, I still feel that way. I still feel that way. Well, maybe that just means that there's still more work to be done, right? But it's always more work. <laughs> but you know, Rich, you said, you said something in the beginning about like, you know, you didn't grow up in a family where you were having these discussions about business and entrepreneurship and this idea or that idea. I think Pat and I come from the exact same boat as you did. And that's obviously made a difference for us that, you know, we wanted to do this to have those conversations. Frankly, initially, it was selfishly just for ourselves. Uh, <laughs> but it's become obviously a lot bigger than just ourselves. Um, and the reason why we like that rawness and we want it to be a conversation and you asked us early on, you know, send, if there's any interview questions and there aren't because I want to just pretend like I am drinking wine with you and I just have no idea about who you are, even though I do a little bit and just have a genuine conversation with you as if we're sitting together. And for the me, magic, and I think for, the magic always happens in the fringe. Yeah, by the way. totally. The magic always happens. Totally. In the fringe. And I was just telling somebody, we were talking to a PR professional and I told her, she's like, what are your metrics? And I said, look, the metrics are good, but let me tell you like why we're doing this. The reason why we're doing this is because we've had people that come up to us and say, we listened to your podcast and it inspired us to start a business. And here's the business or we got inspired to go to business school because we didn't necessarily want to be an entrepreneur or, you know, here, here is our business or here is our product. Can we be on your show now? Right? Like that to me, even if five people listen to me, which is not the case, is a greater impact. If those five people go out and do something, whether it is being a founder or not, like that's the impact that we want to make. You guys are the kindling for that potentially, right? Yeah. Like you're the bridge that brings the real stories, which will ultimately be more inspiring by the way than some fake shit that, yep. you know, like whenever I hear like someone invites me on and I'm like, it's going to be a 15 minute segment. I get, you know why I worry? Not because I can't be a soundbite and a snippet machine, but I know for the end consumer, that's just a press release. Like if right. you're having a 15 minute conversation about someone's entrepreneurial journey, you're going about as deep as a puddle. Yeah. Like it's just, you know, and, yeah. and by the way, welcome to media today in general, not just podcasts, right. but media. And that's kind of where my point was about, like, instead of trying to take a vertical conversation and make it ubiquitous, take the, the, the fragmentation and segmentation and, and drive it deeper and make, put, make, have this incredibly deep, meaningful thing to a sliver of people. And that's how you're going to win mm -hmm. in this day and age. Well, maybe we'll talk offline and start a new business with you that, you know, can 5X complex. Um, I'm kidding. Uh, or, or am I? I don't know. Uh, I tend to joke a lot. Uh, Rich, look, it was fabulous to spend this time with you. Um, you know, like Pat said already, uh, hopefully we can meet in person one of these days once this I'd love over. that.